you just never know what's going to happen in the world. And so there's just no such thing as a perfect opportunity. You, you just got to get started. And the earlier you get started, the earlier you can start making mistakes. And if you look at mistakes the right way, you can make adjustments to those mistakes. And whoever started first will win. Hey, my name is Felix Tiet. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what questions you should ask manufacturers before partnering with them, the game plan for selling as many products as possible at trade shows, and the best way to approach influencers to improve the chances of them working with you. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker. It's an easy way for any brick and mortar shop owner to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use, no design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com slash signage. Today, I'm joined by Akram Abdullah from Nomino, which is at nominox.com. And Nomino is a brand that blends culture and fashion to create meaningful accessories. It was started in 2018 and based out of Phoenix, Arizona, and is a seven-figure business. Welcome, Akram. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Tell me more about the idea behind the business. So Meaningful Accessories, where did the idea behind this business come from? Um, so essentially, when we first started, or I guess late 2017, um, I had this idea of changing the background on my phone to a wallpaper that had a certain quote, a certain phrase, uh, sometimes even images of people that I really looked up to. Um, and I did that because it constantly reminded me, every single time I unlocked my phone, it reminded me um, to kind of, you know, get that positive mindset, whether it be a background that has the word faith or, or patience or whatever it may be, or my favorite quote. So I just use that to have that positive reassurance constantly many times throughout the day. Um, I shared this strategy with many of my friends and family members. And I told them, you know, like it really does help get your mind right. And, you, you know, what else do you have with you in your pocket 24-7? Um, and then I thought to myself, how can I really scale the same kind of concept? And I thought, you know, I should incorporate you know, these meaningful words and these meaningful quotes um, in all languages onto jewelry, onto pendants, and then now clothing and basically all things fashion. So that's how it all started. That makes sense. I, I think I think I get what you're saying about how you had to explain to your family and friends that, hey, you know, these kind of small adjustments, small visual cues essentially in your life can make a difference. And it start off with the background on your phone, but then you said, let's scale this up to, you know, more tangible items with, with accessories. Was that a difficult thing to communicate to people that, you know, weren't your friends or families that, hey, these, the reason why you're creating this brand is because you recognize that there are meaningful benefits to having, again, you know, these visual cues through surrounded in your life? You know, at first I really thought that it would be, um, but I was surprised and that's kind of why we started the business so quickly uh, and why it took off. I was surprised that everybody really loved the idea right off the bat and everybody kind of wanted to hold the word that is so sacred to them. Um, I think like everybody has a word or a quote um, that just really means a lot to them and they, they want to keep it as close to them as possible, like literally on their chest. Uh, or on their arm or on their finger. And so it resonated with people pretty quickly. You know, it didn't need too much explaining or any kind of introduction. Uh, it was pretty self-explanatory what the piece meant to people. Got it. Okay, so did you, at this point, when you when you thought about this, to made this leap from, okay, let's scale this up from, your, from a wallpaper on your phone to, again, you know, physical, physical goods. Uh, and did you have any background this time? Did you have any kind of business or any background in creating a product like this? 
Yeah. So I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, all through high school, I would, you know, buy and sell iPhones, iPads. Uh, I would buy hats uh, from China and sell them on Amazon and eBay. Um, so I've always been buying and selling. It's been a passion of mine. Uh, my dad has his own real estate company, Fix and Flip. Uh, so then when I graduated undergrad, and in undergrad, I studied business management with a focus on entrepreneurship. And during undergrad, I worked with my dad within his business. I would help him uh, with his properties. Um, so I kind of always grew up in the in the entrepreneur environment. And then I worked with my dad for a few years uh, within his business. And then I started my own business before Nominal, a business called Kufi Artist, where I would take verses from the Quran and I would basically get them cut out on wood or engraved on wood and then sold as wall art. So I did that for a little bit. That was the first time that I started experience, uh, experimenting with an online store. Uh, and I did it through Shopify as well. And then I started my, my MBA program. So I did do my master's in business administration uh, in 2017, finished that in 2019, so one year after starting Nominal. Um, so that's my background. So I did have uh, some entrepreneur background as well before Nominal. Got it. Now, what were the first steps then? So that you decided to to can scale this up, create these the these these products. What were the first steps to getting it done? The first steps I would say would be kind of proof of concept. Make sure that there's actually demand out there. Make sure that this actually is a product or an industry that people would be interested in. Um, so I did create few samples first. Started off with bars uh, that had engravings on them, faith, uh, love, patience, happiness, meaningful, powerful words like that. Um, also started off with name necklaces. Um, that way people can really represent their identity, where they're from, the language they speak, their culture, things like that. So I started off with samples, um, kind of just within the community, presented it to everybody. And then everybody kind of really loved what it was that I was offering. Uh, and then from there, I went into the bulk production um, but first, I guess before bulk production, I had to make sure that I was very confident in the manufacturer that I was going to work with. So this is a recommendation I have for a lot of people when they're looking for a manufacturer. You don't sample from just one, you sample from multiple. So I sampled from four different manufacturers and then I went and took that jewelry and I put it in a, a bowl of water for 30 days each. And then I put it outside in different weather conditions for 30 days each. And then I went basically with the manufacturer that provided me the best quality. Um, so we do offer a lifetime warranty in all our pieces and we can confidently do that because I found the manufacturer that has the best processes and the best materials. Um, so I was very patient within the sampling uh, and manufacturing steps within the business. Yeah, that's a good point about how you, you're patient. I think early on, there's a lot of um, kind of encouragement to just get rolling, get started quickly, don't spend time planning out too much. But you took your time where it seemed like you recognized the parts that needed to take time. So how did you know that that was the way to test these samples? Because, you know, people from other industries might want to follow in your footsteps and say, let's work with multiple manufacturers to get some samples in to find who is the best kind of long-term partner. And they get them back and they might just do a visual check and see how it feels in their hands. Does it feel cheap or high quality? And that's it. But you went pretty far. You went like, it took, it took you 30 days, you know, essentially, to, to verify what's the best quality manufacturer go with. So how did you know what to look for in what's considered, you know, high quality? Uh, so I did a lot of research first, you know, and I also asked a lot of questions to the manufacturers. And as I reached out to so many um, to get bids and to, to kind of hear what it is that they have to say, their pitch to get me as a client, I started to realize that some manufacturers would talk about, you know, the different the different amounts of coatings of gold that they would put on their on their jewelry. So first, I didn't even know that was a thing. But then one manufacturer told me they do one uh, one layer of gold plating, then another told me two, and then another told me three, and one told me four, and four is the most that I've, that I've seen. And then I asked if they can do five. I decided, let me try to take it to another level. 
Um, so just just from me reaching out and asking so many questions, and they were like the same questions to so many different manufacturers, I realized that they all had different answers, which made me realize that everybody does something in a different way. Um, so it was that from that moment on that I realized that, you know, I do need to make sure I ask as many questions as possible. And then I decided to go do some research just on gold in general and jewelry in general. And I looked through a lot of reviews of other companies that sell um, jewelry as well to kind of see what it is that customers are asking and what complaints they're having. And I saw that a lot of customers, their main complaint with jewelry was that it changes color or it leaves a certain mark on their on their skin after a certain period of time where they can't swim with it, they can't shower with it. And so I made sure when I was speaking to the manufacturers that I was able to handle those objections. Uh, I want to make sure that they never need to take it off. I want to make sure that we can you know, offer that warranty. So I would say just proper research, take your time, look at reviews for other companies, ask questions. Uh, and then that's how we came out with our final product. Yeah. So I, I want to reiterate this point. I think it's important too, about how, when I asked you that question, it was a more, it was more so like, what did you look at that you cared about in terms of jewelry? But, but the way you gave the answer was that you didn't just go off of what you thought would be high quality jewelry. You went to see what other potential customers were saying about what they cared about in jewelry. And you don't have to wait until you get your own samples to do that. You can just go look at what the competitors or other jewelry brands are or whatever your industry is. Look at what their customers are asking about or complaining about. And then you go bring those questions to your manufacturers. All right. So now you've mentioned you created a few samples. You got a, a few back from different manufacturers. And you mentioned that you started to uh, put out there into your community. Uh, I'm assuming to get feedback. Was this like your local community or like where, where were you getting these? Uh, where were you, you putting these samples out? So both local community, kind of just within my friends and family. Uh, and then within with my business that I did for about a year before I started Nominal, it was called Kufi Artist. As I mentioned earlier, it was the Arabic calligraphy wall art company. Um, and so I actually started off with these pieces only being in Arabic. Until this day, we still do specialize in the Arabic language. But because I had that business that was kind of already very niche, um, people were purchasing Arabic calligraphy designs. I decided, let me, you know, kind of take some pre-orders within that business for these pieces that I now have. So at the time, they weren't nominal branded. They were kind of just Kufi artist branded. And so I took some pre-orders with the small, the small uh, amount of followers that I had. And, you know, I, I got a little bit of traffic on that website. So I took pre-orders over there. And then I saw that there was a lot of proof of concept and that people were loving it. And I realized that there's more opportunity here than there was in the wall art that I was doing. So I decided, let me stop Kufi artist. Uh, let me take a step back and focus more on jewelry and accessories and fashion and get out of the wall art game. And then I started looking for a name for this new business. And that's how I came across uh, the name nominal for the business. Um, but basically, yes, I took some pre-orders through my last business and then saw that it worked and decided to go all out with the new business. Got it. So this was a, a, a untested product, basically, that you brought to them because you wanted to get it tested and see what they thought. How did you present this to an existing audience when you have a product that you're not sure yet if they're going to like it or not? How do you kind of message it in the right way so that uh, you you know you, you don't have your past customers like, hey, you know, why did you send me like you know a crappy product? I mean, I'm saying that that's what they said, but like, how do you make sure that you message it correctly to your existing customers? So I think it comes down to setting proper expectations. And then also pricing it properly. I wasn't super confident in the product. Um, I mean, I was confident, of course, in the aspects of quality because I did sample multiple times and I did kind of take my time with that. But in, in terms of the confidence when it comes to demand, I didn't really know that yet. Um, so I decided to go ahead and present it um, with a very low cost. I was only selling it for about $20 at the time. And so 
you know, with that, there you can't really have that high of an expectation from a customer standpoint. Um, and then I also reassured them that there's kind of no risk when you purchase from from us, from Kufi Artists at the time. And we say the same thing right now with Nominal. There's kind of no risk because no matter what, you're going to leave happy. If you don't like your product, we'll give you a refund or an exchange or whatever it may be. Um, so I did preface it with that. And then, you know, when they see that there's a no risk factor, then they're able to purchase kind of with confidence. Mm. Did you get any feedback that led to redesigning the product or going back to manufacture to make any tweaks? Definitely. So not so much from a quality standpoint, but more from a length standpoint. Uh, for example, maybe the pendant was too big um, or it was too small or the, the necklace chain was too small or too big. Uh, or people wanted to be able to make it smaller and bigger without having to buy another chain. So then we started offering extensions within the chain, chain itself. Um, that way it's kind of, that way it's kind of multi-purpose and they could wear it with different outfits. So we did learn over time based on feedback. Uh, we do accept reviews on our website, which is very valuable. Um, I think a lot of people sometimes run away from reviews, um, but really reviews is just an opportunity for feedback. Uh, one star and two star and three star reviews are sometimes the best reviews. That's where you get your new ideas. So yeah, definitely. We continue to make adjustments. Um, people said they want more options. They want more colors. So first we started only gold. Then they said we're silver. Then they said we're rose. Then we started offering more more of those colors. People asked, I want more customizable options. Um, so then we started doing that as well. So basically, we always kept an open mind, open ears, uh, listened for any any feedback possible, paid attention to what questions people were asking, and just made sure that we addressed them. Got it. Now, when you when you were launching this kind of this beta group of these 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 new products out to your 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 previous customers of your past business, you mentioned that you recognized that there was a better opportunity here in a different category. What did you see exactly that made you realize? Let me basically. I mean, does that business still exist, or did you kind of close that down and focus all on nominal? I closed that down and focused on nominal. The reason I did that is my previous business was an art, um, and so really only I could create it. People were buying from me. Um, and I felt like that wasn't scalable. Um, and I felt like it was, it was in general, just more of a difficult business. I was selling wall art in order for someone to buy wall art. Number one, this is a, an item that's priced much higher. So there's that. And then number two, you need the space within your house. And then number three, uh, just from my standpoint, it takes longer to create and it's a lot more fragile when you ship it. And so there's a lot of opportunity for it to get damaged during transit. Um, there were just a lot of, of course, every business has ob obstacles, but I felt like this specific business had even more obstacles. Um, and I also found myself to be more passionate about jewelry and accessories than I did about art. Um, I've always been big on watches. I've always been big on jewelry, necklaces, bracelets, rings. And so it's been a dream of, dream of mine actually as a kid to start my own line, my own fashion brand. Um, and so I felt like this would be perfect. I would always have this constant energy uh, and passion and um, laser beam focus. If I can just, you know, take my passion for business, uh, and have it be, um, right side by side with my passion for, for fashion. So that was kind of the transition. You know, I just, I really love jewelry and design. And so decided to just go all out in that direction. Mm -hmm. So two years to basically 2018 to now to seven figure to a seven figure business. So you came out of the gates racing. What did you how did you get the kind of attention and traffic to even get those kind of customers in, the, in that first you know few months to a year? I would give all the credit to probably three different industries or three different avenues within business. Uh, the first would be I would say we have we have a mission in place. Um, so every single month we choose a, what we call deed of the month. 
um, where we we choose a certain cause, um, a certain a certain country uh, that we donate a percentage of proceeds towards. And so we always use the word shop with purpose. We want to give, we want to be able to have a platform where people can really make a difference uh, with what it is that they purchase. And we're able to use that platform to raise awareness towards different causes and important issues. So that's the backbone of our business. Every single month as sales grow, so does the donated amount. And so I think it's important for us to, and for business in general, to kind of give back to not just their local community, but give back to the world. Um, and then when people purchase, they want to purchase knowing that their money is going to a good place. So I would say that was, uh, that was the first thing that kind of really helped us grow. Um, just putting a lot of purpose behind our brand and, and providing a story and real change. Um, second would be, we went to a lot of conventions. We had a lot of trade shows, um, more and more each month. Uh, we went to Houston, we went to Nevada, we went to Toronto. We went to, we had a plan for UK, but that got canceled with Corona. Uh, we went to New York, we went to Chicago, D.C., um, California, uh, so many different states. Basically, any state or even country that offered an opportunity for us to set up booths, we went. Um, and so that way, we really got to be in front of the customers. Um, and with each convention, we would grow as well. And we would have more and more tables. We started off with one table, then two, then three, then four, then five, then six, literally all the way down to 16. We went as one person and then all the way to 12 people would travel all from Arizona or we'd fly people out from different states to this one convention and we would basically run the show. Um, what's great about conventions, and I do highly recommend it, is that you get to get in-person feedback. Um, you get to put personality uh, behind your brand. Um, a lot of people, they'll see your Facebook or Instagram ads, but every single brand runs ads these days. And so when they see you in person, they're like, oh, I saw this ad. And so now they're able to put kind of a, a physical memory to it. And some people are hesitant to purchase online. And when they see that you're real, uh, they get reassured and they build that confidence. Um, so we give them an in-person experience. On top of that, we, um, we listen to their feedback. Uh, so we even pay attention. And I tell everybody, kind of take notes as to what people are asking. Are they asking a, a, question, a certain question over and over and over? And we keep telling them no. That means we need to figure that out and make sure that we offer it next time. For example, I, we had adjustable rings. People said, oh, do you have rings in different sizes? I don't like the adjustable ring. People kept asking that question. We decided, okay, clearly this is something that we need to offer. So we discontinued the adjustable rings and now we offer rings in different sizes. Um, and those questions don't always come online. A lot of times they're only asked in person. So we, we just really try to listen to what it is that they're asking us. We take notes on what they're asking us. And then we even pay attention to what they're saying to each other. A lot of people come with their friends. Um, they say things to each other, we catch on and then we take notes and we try to make an adjustment to our business. Yeah. So you so you mentioned with those, those, the two things, or was there another one that you mentioned you credit the success to? Yes. One more as well. So that would be influencer marketing. Influencer marketing has been huge to us. I think there are certain strategies to do proper influencer marketing. Uh, from the very beginning, we of course didn't have any budget at all. We couldn't afford to pay anybody. Uh, even somebody that told us, you know, their fee is $50. That was way too much for us. Um, and so we just did our best to, I think it, it just comes down to sales one-on-one where, you know, you reach out to a hundred people, um, 10 people respond, you close three. Um, so we just did that, you know, uh, and by we, I mean, me and my wife at the time. So we would just send as many emails and DMs as possible. Um, and you know, we'd get some responses, some would respond with a quote that we couldn't afford. Um, but we didn't end the relationship right there. We said, you know what, no worries. Uh, we unfortunately can't do this collaboration at this time uh, as we don't have the budget for it. However, we'd still love to get 
Um, so every single person, we still try to send them free items uh, and just kind of make it seem like it's a gift. And it is a gift. Um, and a lot of times what ended up happening to our favor is they would still post and they would still tag us uh, because they really love the item. And so I think influencer marketing has worked very well for us versus a lot of other products um, because they actually, jewelry is something that you wear. Um, and so they end up wearing it. And even if they don't tag us, it's in their pictures now or it's in their videos now. And then maybe some people, some of their followers ask, oh, where'd you get your necklace? And then they might end up tagging us. Um, or we can now ask for permission for that picture from the influencer if we could repost that on our page. Um, so although we didn't pay them, now we have content. And this content is someone that a lot of people follow and they see, they, we kind of build that credibility through, you know, a famous person wearing our product uh, that we didn't really pay for aside from just uh, the cost of shipping and the cost of goods. Got it. Okay, I want to now break down these three different avenues that you mentioned, starting off with the mission first. So when you mentioned that, I've, I've heard of the businesses doing this too, but they typically would just have a one mission that they stick with throughout the entire thing. So you you have a new mission every single month. That, that Like, how do you handle that logistically? How do you set this up in a way where you find a, a cause that, that, you know, matches up with your values and then set all up so that you can actually, you know, donate a, a, a portion of the proceeds to them? Um, it's, it's kind of difficult to be honest with you, Felix, because there are so many people around the world that need help, you know, so many countries that need help. Uh, it's hard to choose one over the other. And that's why we try. And that's why, um, instead of having one focus towards one country and have that be a part of our mission, um, kind of throughout the lifetime of our company, uh, we change it up every single month. That way, you know, we can really provide help to as many people as possible. For example, February of 2019, we did a medical camp for Yemen uh, where we raised a few hundred dollars. And then March of 2019, we did a Bread for Syria campaign for, uh, for Syria where we, where we raised $2,000. And then we built a water, mel- a water well in Mali uh, where we were able to raise $2,500 just through our sales and through donations as well. We donated money towards an academy for orphans in Africa and Palestine, Palestine refugee families within May. Uh, so we change it up each month. Of course, there are a lot of months where we end up going back to a previous campaign and just raising more money towards it. Um, so it kind of just depends on what's happening in the world. Right now, again, actually, we're raising money towards Yemen um, because there are a lot of starving families there right now. And with Corona, it makes it 10 times harder for them to uh, continue to live their lives safe and healthy. Um, so they need they need help desperately. You know, so it kind of it's based on we try to base it on urgency and uh, who who is maybe not getting attention that should be getting attention? Um, maybe there are a lot of causes that are already, or a lot of businesses, a lot of brands um, that are already focusing on certain groups of people or certain countries, uh, but no one's focusing on Yemen, for example. Um, so then we decide to kind of focus on Yemen. Um, so every single month is different. We discuss internally as to where we want to donate proceeds to. Got it. Okay, now the trade shows, conventions, and th- these are are being uh, attended by retailers or like actual customers that end up uh, purchasing and using the product themselves. I would say with each convention, there's probably fifty to a hundred booths. Um, sometimes up to four hundred booths, being the biggest one that we went to in Chicago um, the last two years. Um, and then by booths, I mean like four hundred small brands, kind of like us. I wouldn't say big big brands. Uh, it's not like Macy's or um, any of those brands. It's just small up and coming brands or mom and pop shops uh, that are local. Um, I would say probably half of each convention. Um, people fly out like us. We've flown out to every single one. Unfortunately, there aren't really any trade shows in Arizona. Um, and then they have their own group of people in terms of customers that come visit. 
So we sell towards customers, um, not to, to not towards other businesses. If that's what you were asking. It's not B two B. It's B two C, business to consumer. So with every single convention, a lot of them are annual, so people know to expect it the next year, and they they try to advertise it towards um, the entire United States. Sometimes even globally, people fly from other countries to come visit. So yeah, every single convention is different, mm-hmm. but they have their own group of audience, and it ranges up to thirty thousand people. I think that was the biggest one that we've seen. Wow! So, did, did, are these conventions that you'd have to pay to have a booth set up at these? Correct? Definitely, yeah, yeah. And it typically ranges between five hundred dollars for a booth all the way up until uh, thirteen hundred dollars for a booth, and we've been as big as nine booths. Wow. So now looking back with your experience going to these trade shows, are there ways to identify which ones have been more worthwhile than others, especially when you might be starting out and you have a tighter budget? Yes. Yes. I would say I would try to focus. I guess it depends on where each brand is located. A lot of brands, you know, conveniently for them, they're located in either New York or Chicago. Um, and that's where the majority of the conventions are kind of New York, Chicago, DC area. And so they can drive there. Um, so if that's the case, because that's where the majority of the expense comes, it comes from the travel, the, the hotel, the, the flight, um, the food that you need to bring. But, you know, if you live in that area and you can drive, then you should probably go to every single one of them. Some yes, do make us more money and get us more exposure than others. And so for those, we, we still decide to go to just about every single one, but we don't necessarily go to every single one again. So based on the, the previous experience, the first year's experience, we kind of make adjustments as to whether or not we want to include them for within our list the next year. Um, some conventions we cut from our list, um, but the majority of the conventions we continue to go over and over, but we might just have less booths. Maybe we realize, okay, we don't need nine booths over here. There's not that many people. Uh, we'll only get nine booths if we realize within a previous year that every single side of the booth gets busy, occupied with selling on every single corner. Um, et cetera. Uh, but if we feel like a lot of the booth in terms of the real estate of the booth is not even getting attention, then we decide, okay, that's a waste of money. Let's uh, cut it down to maybe four booths instead of five booths or six booths uh, so that we can save at least some expenses. Got it. Now, what's the game plan? You know, when you're going there with, you mentioned like, you know, tens of 10 people or more, how do you make sure that you guys capitalize on this, this trade show when you're going there? Are there certain like best practices that you found works well to try to sell out or sell as much as you can? I would say that we need to focus on display and experience um, and relationship building as well. We try to talk to as many of our fan base, whether old or new, um, whether they've been following us on Instagram or whether they saw us uh, the previous year at the convention. We try to just really have conversation with them, you know, get to know them, uh, find out how they found out about us, found out about us, uh, whether or not they already own something nominal, um, kind of get to know them on a personal basis instead of just it be transactional. That way we can give them the best experience and they can really have that memory and we can even maybe follow each other's personal Instagram pages. Um, I would say that's a lot that we pay attention to. So, of course, when building our team to decide who's going to the convention, uh, we do try to focus on the interpersonal skills as well. Um, And then from a display standpoint, we want to make sure that it's set up in a way where people want to take pictures of the booth. You know, we we try to make it look pretty. We try to uh, get a lot of attention. We get neon signs. We get grass walls. we have beautiful display pieces. Uh, so we really do want to be like the shiniest booth, you know, within the entire, within the entire convention place, within the entire hall. Um, so we, we try to really get a lot of attention and build curiosity through our booth. Can you say more about that build curiosity? I think that's important because you, again, you're there with, um, 
it's not like you have hundreds of other boots in that space. And if you want to sell, you have to stand out and make best you want to come to yours. Any any uh, advice or tips on how to, to design a booth that will attract you know crowds to your to your boots? Uh, we I, I think a lot of boots will make the mistake where they they so we go kind of with the mentality of less is more. But at the same time, and by by that I guess I just mean that we try to have a very minimal clean look. Um, that's the theme of our brand, minimalism. That's how the, the word nominal even came about. I was looking for synonyms for simple, minimal, and then I came across the word nominal, and then I ran with that. Um, so we try to be as accurate with our brand name as possible. Um, but we have like a very, a very unique look to our brand. Um, and then we also try to incorporate like certain things like lights. I think it's important to have lights. Um, so we always have this neon light that we bring with us, a big neon light. Um, it's so beautiful to the point where people ask if they can take a picture with it. Um, that's happened many, many, many times. Um, what we did on our last convention is we even got a hanging ceiling banner, uh, which cost a lot of money. It was about a, almost a $3,000 investment, um, but it got a lot of attention. No matter where you were within the entire hall, you could be super far away where it takes 10 minutes for you to walk all the way to us. You could see this big hanging ceiling banner. It's 20 by 20 feet. Um, it had our brand logo on all four corners of it. So I would say try to incorporate lights, try to incorporate a u- unique design. Um, don't overcrowd your space. Don't try to put products on every single corner. Then it confuses customers a little bit as to what it is that they're looking at. It, they may get overwhelmed as well. We want it to be pretty clear what it is that we're selling. Um, we put like a little stand next to each product that explains what the product is, kind of like at a museum or at a art gallery where you see a, a piece of art on the wall and then it talks about it a little bit on the right or left side of it, um, gives a name to the product. Um, that way we can also keep the customers looking and engaging with the product and with our booth for longer. And they really start to invest within it. And I think the more time that you can get someone to spend at your booth, the higher the likelihood it is that you're going to convert them. So we try to give them something to read, you know, and storytell a little bit with them. And yeah, I would say those are some keys. Awesome. Cool. So let's dive into influencer marketing. So you mentioned that when you started down this thing, you had no budget and basically you went with the approach of a numbers game, trying to get as pitch as many people as possible. And if you cannot close them, you can at least still send them a gift and that still might result in, you know, kind of the results that you're looking for. So what was the, the approach here? Like how did you first um, amass the list of who you should be reaching out to, especially if it's a numbers game, how do you figure out who you should even be bothering to reach out to? So our niche right now is, for the most part, uh, the Muslim market, you know, those that are of Middle Eastern or Desi ethnicities, um, Asian ethnicities. Um, So we kind of decided to focus within the niche. um, And then also those that spoke the languages that we were advertising, uh, whether it be Arabic or Urdu or Punjabi or things like that. So we, we tried to find the influencers that were within those demographics. There's a little feature on Instagram that helps you find more people. Like, let's say I land on this one specific profile that matches our demographic. Their followers are likely to purchase our products because they speak the language or they're of the same religion or whatever it may be. Where it, where it says following, there's an arrow that points downwards. If you click on that arrow, it'll show similar profiles. Um, I don't know how the Instagram algorithm does all that necessarily, but it's typically pretty accurate. Um, then we go through all those profiles that it recommends that are similar to this one profile that we landed at. And then with each person that we now newly just found through that feature, we're able to find more and more and more and more and more and more. 
Um, so we just try to focus and make sure that their demographic is similar to ours. I think that matters. A lot of people will make the mistake where they'll uh, spend money or send product to just about any influencer, anybody that has a lot of followers. I think that's incorrect. It's not the best strategy. It's a waste of time and money. You need to make sure that their demographic is similar to yours. You need to make sure that your two markets align well. And then even from a location standpoint, you know, at the very beginning, we don't have the means to, to ship internationally, you know, especially because sometimes the packages will get lost. Uh, so it's not just about the shipping cost because typically the customer pays the shipping cost if it's below a certain minimum cart value. Um, but sometimes, you know, the package may get lost or it may get delivered to the wrong address or even if it breaks, you know, we offer a warranty. So then we have to send it again. And if we send it again, then the customer doesn't pay the shipping. We pay the shipping because it's our fault. Um, and then we, you know, we'll be in the negatives for that order. So at the very beginning, since we have limited budget and there's a huge market within the United States, let's just focus on influencers in the United States. Influencers in the United States, the vast majority of their followers are typically also in the United States. Those that have are influencers in London, their followers are likely in London or in the UK or just in Europe in general. Um, so we try to focus kind of like we really narrowed down our market, who it is that we want to, who our target audience is. And then we found influencers that, you know, meet that criteria. Got it. Now, what's that pitch? When you reach out, I don't know, have you, I'm sure you've kind of refined it over time since you reached out to so many. Like, is there an approach that seems to get the attention the best way? Definitely, yeah. Um, I would say that you need to really level with them. Um, you need to not copy and paste messages. Um, I think that copying and pasting is kind of the, the lazier route. Um, and you will get some responses and you will be able to close some deals. But I think in terms of conversion, um, if you want to increase your percentage, you got to personalize the message to that influencer. Go on their feet, spend a little bit of time, see what event they just posted at or see whether or not they just had a baby or whether or not they just got married or um, something about them that you learned just by scrolling through their profile, even if it's not for that long period of a time. Um, and then we, we mentioned that. So we use their name. And then, for example, I'll say, hey, Sarah, uh, congratulations on your baby. Or I hope you came back home safe and sound from your trip to London. I just wanted to reach out. We're, uh, our company name is Nominal. We specialize in meaningful accessories, Arabic-inspired jewelry. I would love to send you some uh, free items. Take a look at this link. Um, I attached some images of what our bestsellers are. Um, so we personalize each message and we also attach images because sometimes, you know, someone may not want to click on a link, but the image is already there. Images, you could see the thumbnail as well. When you see the thumbnail, maybe it catches your eye. So we try to gauge their, we try to get their interest in different avenues of even the email itself. And we, you know, if there's a lot on your website, then it's important that you kind of just try to make their lives easier. Try to get them to spend as little time as possible to be, to become interested in the email that you just sent out. Makes sense. Now, a product like a product like yours, at the price point and the, the industry that it's in, it's it's kind of like ripe for trying to get those repeat purchases. How do you, how do you encourage? How do you encourage customers to keep on returning and buying more from you? So a few different ways. I mean, we with each order, we we get their email and you know we send them emails. Uh, so we do some email marketing as well, and um, to try to you know remind them that we're still here and you know, show them the new products. And this is in case they're not already following us on Instagram. If they're following us on Instagram or if they've liked our Facebook page, and maybe that's how they found us from the very beginning. Um, then we just try to constantly like post and engage with them and get their feedback. And we send out surveys every now and then, and we'll do Instagram lives. And I think if you don't continue to update them on what's happening within the brand, 
then they may feel like nothing new came out or they may feel like, you know, they've already done what they could with you. Um, they already purchased their favorite products, but if they don't know that you have new products that could now be their favorites, they can add to their collection. Um, that'll just never happen. So you got to make sure that you make them aware of what it is that's happening with your company through your different marketing channels, uh, email, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we use Pinterest as well. So every single platform possible we try to use, to, you know, maybe they don't use Facebook as much as Instagram. So we make sure we post on Instagram. Maybe they don't use Instagram. They only use Facebook. So we got to make sure we post on Facebook. So we just try to make sure that like they're at least following us on one of our platforms. That way we can advertise on that platform and just continue to have their interest. So is it is it that like new product releases is usually the best way to to kind of get them to come back and purchase? Product releases and then we also send an automatic uh, email about 10 days after we've shipped their product asking them for feedback. Um, I think that's important because, you know, it shows them that we're not afraid to receive a bad review if that's their experience. Um, we care about what it is that they have to say. Um, you know, if someone had a bad experience and we kind of just left them in the dark and didn't really see whether or not, whether or not we didn't show them that we care that they could have possibly had a bad experience. Um, so once we send that email out, they typically respond and they provide uh, the potential bad experience. And then we make sure that we address it and take care of it and um, either offer them a replacement or a refund. Uh, we do whatever it takes to kind of gain them back. So I would say that's a lot of the way that we get those return customers to come back. Um, we also include within our packages. We don't always do this. It's kind of seasonal. Sometimes we'll put a piece of marketing material that provides them with a discount for their next purchase. Sometimes we run ads um, just that target someone that has already purchased, not someone that hasn't purchased yet. Um, so there are specific methods like that from an email marketing standpoint or from a, a flyer standpoint for people that purchase for the first time or from an ad standpoint to only target second and third time potential buyers. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. So one thing you mentioned to us um, before the interview was uh, something I think is really important, which is that you mentioned to, you know, don't wait for the perfect idea or opportunity. Don't spend so much time creating a business plan. Just get started because there's no such thing as a perfect idea or opportunity and the business plan that you're spending so much time on anyway will 100% of the time change over time anyways. So was this like a lesson that you learned yourself? Like where did, where, why was it so important for you to get out this kind of message to get out? So I actually learned that from one of my entrepreneur professors uh, during my undergrad years at ASU. Her name is Sydney Peck. Um, she, within a lot of my other business courses, they would have us go through, you know, different assignments that are related to business plan creation. Uh, and we would always do that. And then finally, I got to her class and she spoke that she actually disagrees with a lot of these professors and thinks that you shouldn't necessarily have a business plan. Like, yes, you should have some kind of direction as to where you're going to head. But if you spend so much time trying to perfect it, like a whole year or two years or whatever, um, for this perfect product, I mean, the entire market can change by then. By the time, like right now, you have a certain plan, but the whole world could be different six months from now. And then now your plan is going to change. So you might as well just get started and kind of make adjustments along the way. Have a little bit of a direction. Like, for example, if you know, I live in Arizona, so Nevada is north of us. Um, let me just head north, even if I don't know the exact directions, even if I don't know the most optimal route to get there. Let me just at least start heading there instead of waiting to get internet. Um, I mean, we've changed our business so many times. Our business literally changes every single month, whether it be a new system that we put, we put in the back end or 
uh, something design or packaging related, or if there's something within the details of the quality that we need to change, or even a manufacturer that we just feel isn't providing us with the quality or the delivery time that we would like. So now we need to kind of make an adjustment there. Um, or there's a product that we just want to discontinue because it's caused us too many problems um, or our attention is just more valuable in a different industry. Um, so, I mean, the business world just changed changes so quickly. Uh, I mean, even right now with Corona, like people may have had plans to open a restaurant or open a gym or open a barbershop or whatever it may be. Um, and then, you know, COVID-19 kind of just shut it all down. Um, you just never know what's going to happen in the world. And so there's just no such thing as a perfect opportunity. You, you just got to get started. And the earlier you get started, the earlier you can start making mistakes. And if you look at mistakes the right way, you can make adjustments to those mistakes. And whoever started first will win, I think. Yeah, there. I mean, the, getting that kind of feedback, the real feedback of trying something and it working or not working is way better than trying to think, hey, doing a thought experiment about whether it's the right, right thing or do or not. And, you know, I think I think what you're speaking on is that by spending so much time pausing and planning, you delay execution. I think another piece of it too is that if you spend so much time on worrying about step nine and ten, you take your focus away from being present on taking step one, and now you've you know reduced the the chance that you're taking executing the thing right in front of you a lot better than before. So I think um, there's definitely something to be said about pay, getting started right away. But then I think the point that you made was to pay attention to the results and be able to interpret it the right way so that you can kind of adjust on the fly. So I want to talk a little about the, about your website. So at nominox.com is the website. Was this a design in-house? Did you hire out to, to get this uh, website built? Designed in-house. Yeah, definitely designed in-house. Um, I started building it myself uh, and I got the little experience that I had uh, building the Shopify website before nominalx.com, uh, which was Koofy Artist. Um, so I had a little bit of Shopify experience from there. Uh, but I mean, Shopify, to be honest with you, is such an amazing platform. I uh, love it so much. It always blows me away. And building a website is not as hard as some people would think. Um, I think everybody should try to build their website on their own. So um, I built the majority of the website. And then uh, my first full-time uh, partner over here, uh, his name is Ahmed. Um, he he came around about a year, a little over a year after I started the company. Uh, we're about six full-time right now and a few part-time. Um, but he was the first full-timer over here. And he's also obsessed just like me with anything UI, UX related, uh, website layout, backends, abandoned carts, um, all conversion related things. So now it's a combination of me and him that builds and create, uh, optimize the, the layout and everything, but um, all, all in-house. That's great. So you mentioned that you do spend time kind of optimizing it and making sure that you can squeeze the most dollars out of the website. Have there been any changes that you made recently that have made a big impact on, on conversions? Uh, yes, yes, actually. I would say one of the most awesome features that we added just a few months ago, actually. So we select a few items every single month where we donate 25% of those proceeds towards our date of the month campaign. So for example, this month, we're donating 25% of uh, six different items towards Yemen. Um, from before, people kind of just needed to know which items those were. And so maybe they will add it to their car so that they can, you know, at least one item within their cart will donate towards a good cause. Um, and then they didn't really know maybe exactly how much was being donated or, um, or maybe they didn't even know about our date of the month. Maybe they didn't even know that this item was donating percentage of proceeds. But now when you add the item to your cart, um, and I'm doing it right now, I'm on my laptop. Uh, I click add to cart. It'll say, it'll give me this pop-up. It'll say 25% of your date of the month items are being donated to the hunger crisis in Yemen. 
$20 from this order is going directly to the cause. So it's, it's an awesome feature because it automatically does the math on the items within your cart that are a part of the deed of the month campaign. It does the math, it takes 25%, and then it lets you know how much of your cart is being donated towards the cost, which I think is awesome and um, just provides a lot of transparency to the customer. And, you know, they, it makes them feel good. They know that, you know, they're purchasing from, from a company that's really making a difference and they're able to kind of really be with us and make that difference themselves. Did you see like a, a, a significant uh, decrease in like cart abandonment by putting that there? To be honest, I wouldn't say a significant decrease. Um, our conversion right now is probably on average around 2.75%. Um, but it was, it was at one point around closer to just two. Um, and some might think that a difference in like 0.5 or 0.75 is not a lot, but really that's a lot in terms of conversion. Um, so I would say that it's definitely helped. Yes. I think we, we were probably stuck around 2.25 for a while, but right now we're at, at about 2.75% conversion. Awesome. Now, what about some apps or tools that you use to, to power the website or just power the business as a whole? Uh, some of the apps that we use would be, we use a lot of apps, <laughs> to be honest, uh, which is crazy because the first year before Nominal, I didn't even know apps were a thing. So I'm going to pull some examples up right now. Uh, a recent one that we just added is Clavio, the email marketing platform. We're using that. It's fantastic. Uh, Yapo is a fantastic app for reviews. That's where we get all our reviews from. They manage the reviews and they just provide us a very user-friendly service. Um, they send automatic emails to the customers um, after a certain amount of days that they've purchased. Um, we have a, a survey. It's, it's an app called Surveyor, S-U-R-V-E-Y-O-R. It basically, on the order confirmation page, when they're all complete, it provides them with a survey, um, which gives us information. It asks them, like, how did you find us? Um, what was your experience with us? Uh, what did you run into? What didn't you find? Um, so it gives us a, a ton of feedback that is very useful. Um, we didn't have surveys for a while, so um, that has been game-changing for us. Uh, another app called Showcase, where we're able to sync it with our Instagram account. And then any picture that we post on Instagram, we're able to tag the items within that picture, um, like the actual items that we're selling on the website. And then once we tag those items within the Instagram pictures, it now shows that tag within that product listing, uh, which is super cool. So like within each product listing on the website, you upload certain images. And then now, and every time that we post on Instagram, any picture on Instagram that contains this product will now show also on that same product listing page. So that's pretty cool. Um, we do affiliate marketing as well. So basically we give people the opportunity to make 5% back on uh, each purchase. It's called lead dyno affiliate marketing, um, free shipping bar. This one, I, I probably should have mentioned earlier, free shipping bar is fantastic. Um, we're able to create settings for different countries that provide different free shipping minimums. And so when someone adds something to their cart, like let's say we, we ship for free to Canada and the United Kingdom above hundred USD. So now when people add, let's say, a $50 item to their cart, it'll say spend another $50 and get free shipping. So that has also been fantastic for us. Uh, we've been able to increase our average cart value and uh, increase our conversion through that. Um, for the most part, those, I would say, are our best apps. Um, one more would be best currency converter. Um, when someone lands on the website from a different country, it detects their IP and changes the currency, the price of our product to that currency. Um, that way they don't get scared or... They, they feel like they're shopping locally. So that's, that's really good as well. 
Awesome. Now, one thing that I noticed about your your website is that you have a, a lot of coming soon products at the top of the the kind of landing page, the home page. What was the idea behind this? So for the new products, we like to put them on the website even before they're available. You can't purchase it, but you can add it to your wish list. Um, and so we add these items so people can start engaging with it. They can start looking at the pictures. They can start adding it to their wish list. That way, when the sale goes live, they can check out immediately. Um, it kind of builds hype as well. You know, we, for the most part, advertise on Instagram. Maybe someone isn't paying attention to Instagram, but is shopping on our website. You know, if they don't know about the sale through Instagram, they're going to find out now through the website, through the coming soon. It's going to get their attention. Have you done this before? This, this approach of kind of um, building up hype before a, a sale? Yeah, yeah, and we try to do it more and more, more and more each time. And every single sale, we we do our best to beat the last one, and we typically do. Um, I think building hype is definitely important for the success of a launch or a sale. Yeah, give us a, the game plan for that. Let's say that you have a a plan to to do a sale like the one that you're running. You have these kind of products that are going to go on sale listed, you know, clearly and plainly for people to add to their wish list. How far out do you start promoting it? And what what are you doing to promote a, a big sale like this? We try to we try to plan this out months in advance um, so that we can start putting so we can start designing and then sampling all these new products and then you know by the time we finalize the sample then we got to factor in the lead time for the bulk order and then make sure that we have the bulk order in time. Um, but we we try to with each sale or each big launch we try to launch at least like fifteen items um, and so we start building hype about ten days before the sale begins or the launch begins. Um, and even before, so 10 days before is when we post the first picture of the new item of one of the new items. Uh, and then we post two to three times each day. Um, so for example, today, this morning, we already posted one new item that's going to be, you know, a part of the sale. Uh, yesterday night, we posted another new item. So we just keep posting new items to continue to build the hype. Um, on Instagram and, you know, really get everybody engaged. Um, but I guess our timeline would be 10 days before the sale begins. And then we post two to three times each day, each post being a new item or an item that was a hot seller from before, but sold out and will be a restock within the sale. Um, so we really try to like overwhelm our customers almost with how many new items are going to be available. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So nominalx.com, N-O-M-I-N-A-L-X.com is the website. So I'll leave you this last question, which is, what would you say needs to happen this year for you to consider the year a, a success? I would say, you know, of course, we have certain revenue targets. We also want to donate more than $100,000 this year. Um, so that would be a huge accomplishment for the company. You know, that's been a goal that we set, you know, right at New Year's. You know, as soon as January 1st hit of 2020, we told us we, we had a team meeting and we spoke of, you know, what things would be so awesome. How would we feel so accomplished? How can we cause actual or create actual change within the world with our company as a platform? And, you know, aside from all the sales goals and, um, you know, growing the team to a certain number, uh, we, of course, you know, have to always remember that at the end of the day, you know, we want to be able to create as much change as possible. And so we, we set a donation goal. Um, and that's don that's money that we're donating based on purchases that people are making. So I, there's a difference between donations and raising money. So these are actual like donations made by us towards the different campaigns. And our goal is a hundred thousand, and I, I think we will hit it. Awesome! Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience, this story, Akram. Thank you very much, Felix. Really appreciate it. Huge fan of you and your work. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.